Um, all of us here at MedAct are, are here this evening, sorry, all of us are here this evening to launch the sixth edition of Global Health Watch, a publication that brings together voices from all over the world to reimagine health within a global ecosystem of justice. This latest edition, as always, integrates rigorous analysis of the social, economic, political and environmental determinants of health with stories of struggle and hope for a radical transformation. And we very much hope that you'll come away this evening inspired by this radical vision. Um, MedAct is very proud to be co-hosting this event to promote the book and we're proud that our members and staff have contributed. We would however like to briefly highlight one concern. At MedAct we believe it's problematic to refer to population size in the context of the climate crisis. Um, we've laid out the reasons why in a blog post on our website and if you'd like to find out more please do check it out. Um, so for some quick housekeeping before we get um, properly get going. This event will be an hour and a half long. Our speakers will give their respective contributions for the first hour, and then uh, there will be half an hour after this for questions. So a few logistical things to mention. This event is being recorded, so please bear that in mind. Please keep your microphone on mute. Um, for tech help, you can message Ben at the email address that should be on the slide on your screen. Um, you can also message him in the chat with tech-ben. Um, if you have a question, you can either type it in the chat or send to Hill via private message also in the chat. You can use the raise hand function during the Q&A as well. Um, and finally, as a ground rule, please keep um, discussion respectful and make space for other people's questions. And with that, I'm going to hand over um, to Becca, who will be introducing our speakers. Hello, my name is Rebecca. My pronouns are she, her. I'm a coordinating member of MedAct Race and Health Justice Group and a member of PHM UK and work as a junior doctor in London. I'm here to co-facilitate with Sarah tonight. Um, it's really great to share this space with you all, so thank you so much for being here with us today. We are so, so grateful to all of our speakers for being here to share with us their perspectives on and visions for health justice. Each speaker, as Sarah said, will share with us for about 10 minutes and then there'll be time for Q&A at 8pm. So please do put your questions in the chat or save them up for later. So without further ado, um, first up, I'd like to introduce Dr. Chiara Bodini. She's a founding member of the Centre for International and Intercultural Health of the University of Bologna in Italy and a long-standing activist of the People's Health Movement. She's co-edited Global Health Watch 6 and we're delighted for her to be with us tonight. So over to you, Dr. Bidini. Thank you very much. Thank you, Becca, and thanks everyone MedNAC, for organizing this uh, launch. Um, so my, uh, it's really a pleasure to, to talk uh, to talk to you, to share a bit about the book. Um, I've been asked to to share something about the process and also the content of Global Health Watch Six. First of all, just to say it is the sixth edition of one. One of, we say, the People's Health Movement Global Programs, um, which is about generating knowledge and, and disseminating alternative and radical knowledge on health issues and on the struggle for health. Um, it's a collective effort. So each edition of this book, and this one uh, doesn't, is, is no different, is produced uh, collectively, is written collectively by over 100 um, activists, academics, and um, people working in grassroots organizations, community organizations around the globe uh, from, I think, around 28 countries. Um, so each chapter has been contributed by individuals or groups and has been revised also by other activists within the movement. Um, 
for us, it's a process of not only um, putting together um, knowledge, but also, I mean, knowledge on the issues and, 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 and building um, analysis that can contribute to better understanding the root causes of the health struggles that we face in different parts of the world. Um, but also to highlight the ways in which communities and people organize to resist and to produce alternatives to such uh, struggles and challenges. So the structure that's a bit traditional to Global Health Watch is, um, is organized in different sections. Um, and the first one uh, is quite relevant for us because it set the framework of, uh, we call it the global political and economic architecture. So people's health movement um, and the, I didn't mention the organizations that co-produced the book, uh, which Medact is, is one of them, Health Poverty Action, um, Alames, Third World Network, Medico International, Viva Salud and Sama, and they are all allies in the, in the global people's health movement. Basically, um, our understanding of health issues is framed in what we call the political economy of health. That means um, believing and, and, and trying to analyze and show how interconnected um, health and, and equity in health are with the global and, and local political economic architecture. And what are the powers at stake and what are the interests at stake and how we can build a counter power to make a change in such, in such uh, uh, arrangements and balances. So the first section of the book tries to, to frame this. Um, of course, the subtitle of the book is In the Shed of the Pandemic, because when we started um, the process, the process of, of putting together the book is quite lengthy. It takes about two and a half years, more or less. And as soon as we had started to define the structure, the pandemic, the COVID pandemic struck. And um, it was a quite a challenging uh, period for us in which we had to, on the one hand to take into account the fact that all the contributors, which by the way are volunteer contributors, were struggling with different um, challenging situations both in their private and professional lives because many of them uh, are involved in the health fields in, in, again in different parts of the world. And also we wanted to incorporate what was happening in the analysis because it seemed so relevant. So. Um, so, so the process of, of putting together the book had a slight delay, um, but this is, I think, reflected in um, a stronger um, evaluation of the pandemic. Of course, not, not its final impact, which is kind of difficult to, to evaluate even now, but um, the way it intersected a lot of the issues that are normally tackled in Global Health Watch, uh, including health systems and also the social determinants of health, and also how the international institutions reacted to the pandemic. Um, so that, then there's a second section on health systems, and, and here we have a number of, uh, let's say, um, usual uh, topics that are relevant for PHM. Um, in, in PHM, we, um, we believe that primary health care and comprehensive primary health care are, are still uh, an important um, topic to be discussed and to be, uh, in a way, achieved in many contexts. And, um, so there is the analysis of how this is actually happening or not happening and how many discourses around healthcare privatization and, and financialization of health and healthcare provision are undermining the accent to decent healthcare for many people and communities in the world, both uh, across countries and in countries. Um, and maybe something a bit um, peculiar and innovative that we have in this um, in this version of the book is a, um, a chapter on digital health. 
which is an, an emerging topic. And again, the pandemic acted as an amplifier, both in, in accelerating a lot of processes about digitalization of health, with, as you can imagine, a lot of accompanying concerns about um, the role that the market interest and profit play in this, and also the issues linked to um, privacy and security of data and government, government control. Um, then PHM is a health movement, but as I said, we, we, we have our vision of health is, is health as something that is rooted in, uh, in social justice and in, 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 in the way societies get organized and produce and distribute resources. So the third section of the book is dedicated to the social determinants of health. And um, a number of chapters are here quite uh, relevant, I believe. The one on conflict, which Medak contributed to, and, uh, and they will speak about it uh, in a moment. Um, and then just two other chapters, I think are very uh, relevant because they also, um, if, I, if I take a historical look at the movement, and of course it's, it's very positioned from my perspective, so other people may have different um, perspectives, but I think that there's a, a chapter on environment um, and struggles for environmental justice across the world. And there's a chapter on food systems and both are quite rooted in um, alternative and um, movements uh, uh, that, that act around uh, environment and, and uh, food system issue in, um, in, in a way that strengthens international solidarity and that tries to build power across communities of resistance, also highlighting the transnational issues that affect environment and food systems in countries. So those two chapters I, I really enjoyed reading <laughs> because I think they also provide um, not necessarily new topics, but, um, but new analysis that uh, may be less uh, traditionally rooted into the health movement. And they provide a very interesting space for convergence with other movements, which is another um, challenge of PHM and also something that we hope Global Health Watch may be helpful for. Um, convergence means when movements organizing around different topics see, see you know, the, their commonalities and, and common struggles and they can build force and power together. Um, and then we have um, the fourth section is on watching. This is also another uh, activity that PHM does as many other um, organizations and activist organizations trying to monitor um, international institutions and the role positive or often negative that they play on, on people's health and on health justice. Uh, World Health Organization is obviously one of our, uh, of the institutions we, we watch more carefully. We still have hope that uh, they can do something um, in the right direction, but uh, this needs a lot of advocacy and a lot of pressure from, uh, from civil society. And then other institutions, international financial institutions, um, the UN system. So in this section, you will find updates on how uh, the, the governance of these institutions and again, how the, the way in which they are financed shapes the, the capacity to, uh, to take decisions and, uh, and also the outcome of these decisions, uh, which, which many times are not really in, uh, in favor of um, or aligned with what we would like to see them doing. Um, and then there is a concluding chapter. So, uh, so previous editions of Global Health Watch had a final uh, section on resistances. This time we decided to encourage all um, authors and also to collect a lot of histories of struggle and resistance. So you will find them embedded in the analysis um, and also as case studies in the chapters. But still we have a final chapter uh, pulling them together. Um, 
and trying to make some reflections on what the directions of uh, health activism um, and, and global international solidarity around health, uh, where, where they are going and where they should be strengthened. Yes, I have one minute left, but actually I'm also done with what I wanted to share. Um, again, I'm very, very happy to be here. I'd be very happy to, um, to respond to your questions. Maybe I'll put in the chat some logistic information on how to get the book if you want it. And uh, also if you want to organize launches or events, uh, promote it in any way in academia, academia, in activist groups, anything, just, uh, just write to me. I'll be happy to support. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Dr. Bedini, for sharing with us about how this publication came together and the deep and intricate work that went into producing it. Um, I think that's really important as we, we move into the next conversations. So next, I'd like to introduce to you um, Dr. Lauren Paramu. She's a member of People's Health Movement South Africa and a senior lecturer in the Political Studies Department at the University of Cape Town. She is currently coordinating the People's Health Movement's Democratizing Global Health Governance Programme. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks, Rebecca, and good day, everyone. It's, it's good to be here, and it's nice to see that um, the Global Health Watch 6 is finally being launched. Um, so when I was invited to speak, um, it was an invitation that came from uh, Ben Ida, who was one of the co-authors on a paper that the Health Systems Thematic Group worked on. And that paper focused on care extractivism during the COVID pandemic. And so um, the invitation was to, to focus on this concept um, and how it spoke to some of the issues in uh, Global Health Watch 6. Uh, so that's my starting point. Um, and the, um, the idea of care extractivism is taken from Wichter, who writes, who writes about the uh, intensified commodification of of labor and exploitation of labor that happens um, for the purposes of managing crisis situations without burdening the state um, or the health industry with additional costs and responsibilities. And of course that happens um, primarily uh, by exploiting the social reproduction work done by women. Um, so as we, we wrote about in the paper, um, women make up the bulk of healthcare workers, particularly at the lower levels of the occupational hierarchy. Um, and in many places in the global south, including South Africa, where I'm based, um, many of the women that have been at the forefront of the COVID-19 pandemic have been community health workers. So um, in a way, one of the things I'm speaking about is uh, a thread that runs through, I think, Global Health Watch 6, which is um, this concept of social reproduction work, the work of sustaining life itself. Uh, and it might not be that there's a chapter dedicated explicitly to it, um, but it's certainly foundational, especially given that the uh, one of the kind of foundational principles in BHM is that um, to realize for all, the right to health for all, one of the things that you need to realize is equity in terms of the social determinants of health. And so the uneven distribution of social reproduction work and the gendered nature of it is um, something that can't be sustained if, if that's the ultimate goal. So one of the other things um, that I was asked to speak about was what kind of organizing um, I've been doing and 
how this relates to some of the themes in Global Health Watch 6. So that I want to speak about in relation to the country circle where I'm based, which is the South African country circle. And I think like many places in the world, we've been doing a lot of work around access to COVID-19 technologies and, and in particular, the, the TRIPS waiver, um, which is due to be discussed, well, which is being discussed, but um, perhaps which will come to a head at the 12th Ministerial Conference of the World Trade Organization in, in mid-June this year. And so I think one of the things that's been really central um, to our work in South Africa on the TRIPS waiver is to show the ways in which um, intellectual property rights are not gender neutral, but are in fact deeply, deeply gendered. Um, and so one of the things I think um, that we've seen in South Africa is that women as a result of the pandemic have lost more jobs than men. So for example, uh, two thirds of all job losses in South Africa uh, have been suffered by women, um, where workers so-called bounced back. Uh, women have gained access to fewer labor hours than, than men, and especially compared to pre-pandemic periods. Um, women have seen their unpaid working hours increase due to more work that is to be done in the household, particularly during lockdowns. Um, women have had less access to social assistance grants. Um, and then also in the context of the pandemic, um, women's access to routine healthcare services um, have been reduced, mainly because of the, the bulk of public sector health services being aimed at dealing with the fallout of the COVID-19 pandemic. And so at the same time as we've seen the um, intensification of women's labor, particularly with respect to social reproduction work, uh, the unpaid labor being exploited, what we've also seen in South Africa is that um, the paid labor force, the women uh, that are working in formal health occupations have seen a similar uh, intensification in terms of their burden of work, but also higher levels of insecurity. So you will see that um, one of the chapters in Global Health Watch deals with austerity. Uh, and so one of the things that we've been experiencing in South Africa as uh, partly a result of the COVID-19 pandemic and it's um, the burden it's placed on the public purse, but also partly as a result of uh, decades of neoliberal policy implementation is that austerity politics have deepened uh, in the wake of the pandemic. Uh, and so rather than seeing community health workers, for example, being rewarded uh, for the, um, the really heavy burden they've, uh, they've borne in the context of the pandemic, both in terms of doing prevention work, popular education, but also making sure that people have access to care when they are in crisis. Um, rather than seeing uh, these women being rewarded uh, with decent wages and formalization of their contracts, what we've seen uh, in the past year in particular is um, uh, pressure to either cancel contracts uh, or to discontinue um, not only the work of community health workers, but also nurses and doctors in the public health sector. And so this is directly related to uh, an austerity politics uh, and pressure on the South African government, like many other governments on the continent, um, to balance their budgets uh, in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. 
and so I think um, you know part of what uh, I'm trying to convey is not something that's surprising. <laughs> I think um, this is a, a conversation that's familiar to us. And I think um, one of the things that not just this version or this issue of Global Health Watch illustrates um, is that the it is exactly the unsurprising nature of this dynamic that's disturbing. So particularly if we look at the issue of austerity and the way in which it's eroded uh, the integrity of public health systems globally. Uh, this is a thread that I think runs through all of the previous editions of Global Health Watch. If we look at the issue of uh, the precarity of healthcare workers at the lower levels of the occupational hierarchy, this is an issue that again runs through uh, previous editions of Global Health Watch. And if we look at the issue of inequitable access to medicines, um, this again is an issue that runs through previous issues and I think has perhaps been most sharply highlighted and in very similar terms uh, in relation to the HIV AIDS uh, pandemic. And so really, I think this issue emerges at a point where um, ironically, after um, much of 2020 being spent focusing on uh, narratives around how we should build back better uh, uh, compared to pre-COVID times, um, I think there has been a shift uh, in the public discourse and that shift emphasizes returning to normal. Um, and in this brief narrative that I, I presented, um, I think one of the uh, the, the key takeaways for me is that the shift of returning to normal has been, and um, disturbingly, I think, will probably continue to be subsidized uh, through the exploitation of, of the, the unpaid labor and often invisibilized labor of, of women in the household, um, but also the underpaid and overexploited labor of women that uh, work uh, on the front lines of the health system often failing public health systems. Um, and these are the community health workers um, that have been so crucial in shaping the COVID-19 response. Um, so, so I think it's the bleak picture, but I do also want to echo um, what Kiara highlighted at the end of her introduction, which is that I think one of the strengths of Global Health Watch is to forefront um, pockets of opposition models of struggle uh, and I think one of the chapters in the, the current edition of Global Health Watch 6, uh, where that happens is um, the chapter on privatization and resistance to privatization during the COVID-19 pandemic. And um, so maybe on that somewhat hopeful note, I'll hand back to Rebecca, thanks. Thank you so much, Dr. Paramu, and thank you for your poignant reflections on the issues you're organising around and for your insights and expertise. Next, we welcome Dr. Annabelle Shomimo. Annabelle is a sexual health and reproductive health trainee and founder of Decolonizing Contraception, a community-based organisation addressing the colonial history of sexual and reproductive health. If you haven't checked out the incredible work they do, please do. Annabelle is also a regular columnist for Galdem and a part-time PhD candidate and a Harold Moody Scholar at King's College London, focusing on the historical experiences of Black British women and fertility control methods. They are a MEDAC trustee and are currently writing their first book on decolonising healthcare set to be released next year. Annabelle firmly believes that healthcare should be about empowering people with knowledge to make informed choices about their bodies. 
and Annabelle spends their time campaigning on reproductive justice against NHS costs and improving healthcare for marginalised groups. We are so grateful for you being with us today and keen to hear more about this work. Um, so over to you. Thank you very much and sorry for that lengthy introduction. I <laughs> thought that maybe you'd cut it down a bit, <laughs> but that was really nice. Thank you. Um, so just going to give you a little bit of an overview of um, my work and what I do. And thank you for inviting me um, to be part of this discussion and lots of what I do overlaps with this latest issue. Um, of Global Health Watch. Um, so yeah, you've already given me an introduction, so I'm not going to cover that all again. Um, essentially, I'm just going to broadly touch on the issues in terms of what decolonizing um, contraception is and talk a little bit about the decolonizing aspect and also um, the contraception aspect, which relates to reproductive justice um, and our, our take on kind of health activism in 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 our sector. So um, why do I do what I do? Um, Decolonising contraception um, was founded because there was kind of an absence of conversation, um, analysing and looking at real time the conversations that I saw happening on social media, in particular a space that we know is actively used by marginalised groups to build community and build movements increasingly in um, a world where our views are often marginalised in mainstream media. And you see that um, quite often conversations around healthcare um, and often people talk about um, injustice in policing and structural violence in that way, but actually there's a lot of discourse around health inequality on social media. It can tell you a lot about what people's concerns are. So these are just a smattering of tweets that, um, I've picked up um, over the kind of last year, um, but they're always there and always um, um, easily found. So this one of them is from Yuchi Blackstock, who is an MD in America that talks a lot about um, racial inequality. Um, and she said black women with a college education or grade have a high infant mortality rate than white women who have a high school diploma. In fact, the infant mortality rate is highest for black women with a doctorate or professional degree, dot, dot, dot. Um, racism. Um, and so we do think we have similar statistics around this in, in the UK around um, there being a spike in um, infant mortality amongst um, black women and more highly educated. We already know there's a gap in terms of more maternal mortality amongst um, black and mixed women um, in, in the UK anyway. However, there seems to be this spike where if you get more educated, which runs contrary to everything we know about the social determinants of health. Um, another tweet from another um, American MD who speaks a lot about health inequalities. Um, racism permeates the medicine the same way it does in the rest of society. Black women suffer far higher mortality than their white peers. Doctors protesting racism, like say taking the need to fight white supremacy, get hounded by other racist doctors on social media and then fired. And just drawing parallels by, between how we conceive of uh, mortality rates and then we kind of put that over there as that something that happens that's happening to our patients and don't really interrogate the um, internal racism that's within our own structures amongst medics amongst other health professionals and sometimes our own internal biases that are feeding into these statistics by being enacted not only on our 
our racially marginalized colleagues or other people that are marginalized and how that perpetuates the um the inequalities that we see in our society and then this is just um a, a tweet shared by um a black woman on social media that just said it's and and it went viral so it had probably i think the last time we checked had well over a hundred thousand likes which obviously likes don't translate necessarily to overall sentiment in society but it does tell you that a lot of people do concur and this is a a feeling that comes up quite a lot um, when I do um, outreach events and I speak to people one-on-one -on -one about uh, medicine as an institution. It's not just police, it's the system, it's white doctors killing us, it's white judges giving us life sentences, it's white citizens being able to kill us on the street and getting rewards for it, destroy the system. So the reason decolonizing contraception essentially um, was born out of frustration because there's a huge disconnect um, that we have, I think, between the academic space, the clinical space, the activism space, and I span all three in terms of the conversations they're having and what people are willing to um, address. Um, and we've known for a really long time, particularly in the activist space, that for people, there's a real um, connection um, between the structural violence that they feel in their day to day lives and figures that are supposedly in authority that are supposed to help them. That seems fairly obvious. But then there's very little interrogation that happens amongst health professionals um, amongst their own role um, in this and how they help perpetuate these 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 forms of violence. Um, so. Decolonizing framework, and there's lots of different academics that talked about this. I guess one of the more prominent books on this issue is Decolonizing Methodologies by Tiwa Smith, who's the Maori um, academic. And um, she said to decolonize is to acknowledge the often harmful role that colonization has played in distorting knowledge and restructuring our society. Ask how we may dismantle this is derived through colonialism instead center the experience of indigenous populations and obviously she's coming from an um, from a perspective of settler colonialism and the colonialism that um, I've kind of experienced as part of my family's history as a British Nigerian is one of kind of exploitation colonialism so Britain as the motherland and um, resources kind of funding Britain that way um, but there's been a real lack of um, conversation over the years of how um, our current structures of healthcare still are structured around that. In the academic space, there's a wealth of writing, which lots of academics on the call will be really familiar with. But then this hasn't really done much to permeate um, until fairly recently, the, the medical teaching or the rethinking of the frameworks or understanding. And a lot of these narratives did have come through in, the, um, in terms of the most recent um, Global Health Watch. People kind of scratching that service of saying oh well you know we know that um things like gdp govern health policy but then in essence not really interrogating what the actual origins of some of these measurements were even within my own specialty we have things like the pearl index looking at the effectiveness of um contraception um and why that was um a why that measurement gained um, attraction at that specific time. And a lot of these things are born out of the fact that they were important structurally in terms of um, supporting um, ongoing um, desires to um, maintain kind of colonialism and, and those structures that were existing at the time. And then we haven't really done away with some of those ways of thinking or thought of new ways um, to build more equitable forms of health policy without um, certain measurements in place. 
Um, so in terms of when I speak about decolonizing healthcare and some of the things that I'm trying to address and look at, it's very much about um, contextualizing our current system of healthcare, making our system more inclusive and equitable and the very basic um, um, principles, dismantling, questioning the very essence of some of the systems that we have and trying to devise new systems. And these are very difficult things to do, of course, but it's really about getting people to ask more questions about why early on, um, which took me a lot of time to do. So going back to my own specialty and what that means, a lot more people are very familiar with the origins um, of family planning and why family planning um, in the 1920s, 1930s started to get more traction and really it was because people saw the value of um, rolling out family planning in forms of con um, um, population control and Mary Stopes um, was an ardent eugenicist um, and this is just a quote from a magazine that she used to pen called Birth Control News that said sterilization on the unfit raises a hornet's nest but no one worries at all about the daily sterilization no go now going on of the fit young married men of the professional classes are today often forced by conditions to remain sterile though they passionately desire the healthy children they could have if they did not have hordes of defective to support in one way or the other so when we talk about um decolonizing contraception we're talking about um reproductive justice um, which I'll outline in more detail we're trying to really push the conversation away um, from the idea that people only have value if they're productive um, which has been discussed in great detail by many different people but in this um, current climate where people are very um, worried um, about climate change and we are trying to focus on um, climate justice. Um, unfortunately, in different guises, the very ugly argument keeps being reared that people in essence are not useful to society, um, need to be reduced in some kind of way, um, or their resources limited. And we don't really talk about um, the rap, um, rap, reparations or thinking about um, redistribution of resources and what that looks like, or the very essence of people's lives, which means that some lives are um, inherently more traumatic than others. And that leads some people to um, treat their own resources in different kinds of ways to um, counteract and balance that so often in this area of sexual reproductive health we've been restricted by choice narratives which is this idea that we should just give people enough resources and education so that they can kind of choose their own destiny whether that means in terms of um, contraception or uh, using condoms or planning and that's the way to go and we'll take this hands-off approach we just need to enable choice and autonomy which doesn't really work in a society that's inherently um, unequal. Um, what does it mean to give somebody a choice when um, they live in a society where their son is 10 times more likely to be incarcerated than somebody else? Did they really have a choice whether to have that child or not when all the men around them are in prison? And those are the questions that we are saying that we really need to ask and interrogate. Um, so when we talk about um, reproductive justice, um, this um, the base framework was coined by um, Sister Song Collective in the US and Loretta Ross and other collectives like mine and around the around the um, I shouldn't say my collective because I hate saying that we are a collective. So, but in terms of the collective that I founded, we are very much trying to push that conversation um, and devise. Um, 
and build around reproductive uh, reproductive justice within our own context, because it's very important to be specific and not just um, lift things from other places, but also interrogate our own history. And within our own history, we have, um, in terms of Britain, we have um, a long history of um, using natalist policies um, and we've seen this more just today um, in terms of migration policies to restrict people um, that have skills to offer and just want to build a new life for themselves based on the idea that those human beings are inherently less valuable so we are talking about the right to have a child the right not to have a child and also what it looks like when people do have children in terms of the resources they have to ensure that they have quality lives um, and that's what reproductive justice means and it's about bringing the argument back to that and moving away from the idea of productivity um, because within that something really violent happens when you say that unless human beings are um, can't be productive that they have no use to society ultimately people that are disabled or um, society ultimately deems biologically less valuable will always end up being oppressed and it's very hard within sexual reproductive health to move away from that base argument particularly within the models that we have because um, people um, don't want to fund sexual reproductive health anyway because it's stigmatizing and taboo so we have um, to get funding in this sector people have built up economic arguments around if you give x amount of iud's um, you can stop x amount of children going into care or you can get this amount of more women back to work and that's how we attract attract funding to the sector um, however it's not a sustainable way of funding sexual reproductive health sector because you end up in this other really dark place so what do we do? We do a lot of inside, outside game. So we create resources for the community like our Zine, which talk about more basic issues in terms of not basic issues, but more um, easily accessible issues, just online dating, those kind of things around racism and dating, um, classism and dating, that kind of thing. And then we also, um, you know, create campaigns with other organisations to make conversations um, more accessible and less alienating and have podcasts and things. And this, and we also do policy and collaborate with other organisations. Um, so this was a piece of work we did with BPAS, um, looking at LARCs and looking at coercion amongst young people and other marginalised groups um, feeling pressured to use certain methods. So I think um, that is probably well over 10 minutes. <laughs> Sorry, I forgot to time myself. But you can go on our website um, if you want to know more um, as well. Thank you so much for sharing your work with us. Um, I was trying to take notes at the same time. We have so much to learn from your work and to take forward away from this space, both in the context of reproductive justice and across medicine as a system and structure as a whole. So thank you. Next, we welcome members from the MedAct Research Network who will co-present together. Um, Roman Kanagi is a developmental professional based in Arua, Uganda. He is currently carrying out research on the contributions of health workers towards peace building in northern Uganda's refugee settlements and is a member of the MedAct Research Network. Dr. Katia Confortini is an Associate Professor of Peace and Justice Studies at Wellesley College in the USA and a member of the MedAct Research Network. 
Her work is inscribed in the feminist peace research tradition and explores the contributions of women's peace activism to peace studies and feminist theories of peace and violence. Besides many articles, journal articles and book chapters, she has co-edited co Gender, Global Health and Violence and the Handbook of Feminist Peace Research. A monograph is entitled Intelligent Compassion, Feminist Critical Methodology in the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. Dr. Michael Orgel is a doctor retired from clinical practice who specialized in addiction treatment in the NHS. He has an MD from Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine in the US and he is an anti-nuclear activist who is a member of Medex nuclear weapons group. He's also a member of Don't Bank on the Bomb Scotland and in 2017 participated in the Scottish delegation to the UN negotiations for the nuclear ban treaty. So without further ado, over to you. Thank you for being with us tonight. Thank you so much. Um, it's a great pleasure to get to talk a little bit about uh, our collaborative work and that you know, we're finally at this stage of, of the release of Global Health Watch 6. Um, I wanted to, to mention a few points about how we worked on this because it was really, as was mentioned before, a very collaborative effort. Um, the chapter that we worked on, which was called Conflict and Health in the Era of Coronavirus, was made by uh, a group of people from, as was said, the MedAct Research Network. Um, this included uh, Michael Tonkins, Fasi Arias, Emily Yerby, Marta Bushevic, um, Hill Akit, who is, uh, was our coordinator for this and helped us from the, from the side of the MEDAC team, and uh, Katia Confortini and Michael Orgel will also speak uh, about it a little bit. Um, the way we came together about this was really that uh, the different members of the, of the team that we had all had quite different backgrounds. There were people with uh, public health backgrounds, obviously health workers um, and retired health workers. There were also people still at university. So there were, there were different levels in terms of how people can approach research, but also the interests they had. And because the topic was very broad, um, Hill's first task was to bring us together and then to, to find together what, what we really wanted to write about. And this was a very interesting and very rewarding process, I think, for all of us, because we, we really learned about different perspectives as well. And um, we then went off sort of in the directions that, that each individual saw as, as quite important with regards to conflict and health which also included, of course, again, the coronavirus and the effects that the coronavirus had, both on conflicts, but also on health workers in conflicts and how they, they dealt with it. Dealt with it. Um, in my case, as I can say quickly from, from my own personal work, uh, in more in the public health side of things and, and humanitarian and development projects, the interest was very much on using local resources which come from health workers because uh, conflict resolution and peace building is very often still seen as a sort of expert field where we work very top down, we bring in people and we, we sometimes fail to use the resources that are there, the people that already have the connections. Uh, the important role of community health workers was mentioned before, community health workers are based with the people, they have a, a strong connection that can be used to contribute to peace building, to, to good social relations. We wanted to highlight in the chapter, I think really as well, that um, there are different levels of approaches needed 
to to create a, a peaceful society to overcome conflict and then there are very very important contributions to be made from those who normally work with people who normally um, you know comfort people as well and and who have a very uh, strong intricate knowledge of, of community which which in many many cases are are health workers yeah thank you very much i think i can give over with that to katya uh, hello thank you roman um at first i wanted to say that it was really an amazing experience to produce this collective chapter and I want to thank hillary for including all of us and leading a leaderful group um, our chapter as roman already said analyzes the global relationship between peace and health um, and it emerges from the assumption that an expansive notion of peace has to include health and well-being for all, that peace is not just an absence of armed conflict and war. In this sense, the COVID-19 crisis has compounded and exacerbated the effects of existing armed conflict. And we have several case studies to um, show to show this. For example, the civil war in Yemen, one of the case studies has damaged every sector from agriculture, irrigation, and food production to healthcare, water infrastructure, sanitation, social services. And in condition of poor sanitation, infectious diseases have rampaged. Yemen has suffered, for example, um, the worst outbreak of cholera in, uh, in epidemiologically recorded history. But the war has also exacerbated malnutrition, maternal mortality, sexual and gender-based violence. The emergence of COVID um, has therefore compounded an already grave situation. And especially in refugee camps, as Roman also mentioned, and not only in Yemen, where overcrowding conditions make physical distancing impossible, poor access to water makes hand washing and hygiene difficult, where illiter illiteracy uh, restricts access to information about effective information control. Um, also, our chapter underscores that women have, again, been the hardest hit, um, being overwhelmingly expected to care for the sick, facing heightened burden barriers to sexual and reproductive health services as resources are redirected and movement restrictions tightened. The other uh, strain that runs through our chapter, or another section of our chapter, I should say, also notes how COVID has been weaponized. That is many uh, of the world's government have used the pandemic as an ex excuse to weaken human rights, advance authoritarian goals, undermine the integrity of democratic institutions and in general social justice. Um, this is, for example, the case of the US where I live where COVID has provided an excuse to further disenfranchise people of color in elections, also restricts uh, immigration and asylum policies. In Turkey, that's another case, anti-terrorism laws have been used to intimidate or arrest individuals who criticize the government's handling of the pandemic. Uh, Sri Lanka used a militarized approach to control the virus. Um, and the 
pandemic has also been a useful distraction for increasing repressive measures in other contexts. Um, this is the case, um, for example, in China with its repression of Hong Kong pro-democracy protests, but also in Israel, who has, which has used the COVID-19 as a pretext to tighten, tighten its control over and increase violence against Palestinians. Uh, in this backdrop, we also note how, and this is um, something that runs through uh, Global Health Watch 6, how increased state repression has been met by popular and creative resistance, in this case embodied uh, in the emergence of mutual aid and solidarity networks, and in feminist and anti-racist organizing across the globe. Um, on the other hand, there are also, and we cannot discount the regressive nature of some of these movements against the state, as in the case of anti-vax movements and protests um, that are rooted in ideologies that run counter the spirit of solidarity and mutual aid that animated others. And I'll pass it over to Michael. Hello, um, I'm Michael Orgol. <clears throat> uh, our contribution from the uh, to the uh, chapter was a, a box about the Treaty for the uh, Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. Uh, I was not the only one involved with that. Emily McSwigan, who I think is at the meeting as well, uh, co-authored that. Uh, and uh, it was interesting that uh, Professor Paramore from uh, South Africa was talking about the social reproduction of life. And uh, our small contribution it was about the potential uh, extinction of all uh, life. The, uh, um, the, uh, some people call it the other uh, existential risk uh, with climate change and uh, in July 2017, following a decade of adv advocacy by ICANN, which is the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons and uh, its partners, uh, and MEDACT is uh, in ICANN, and MEDACT is also the UK affiliate of the IPPNW, the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War. Uh, uh, after uh, an overwhelming majority of the world's countries adopted a landmark global agreement to ban nuclear weapons, which is known as the TPNW. So its shorthand is the Nuclear Ban Treaty. And that entered into force on the 22nd of January, 2021. And there's uh, over uh, 61 countries have ratified it. It's quite likely in the next few weeks, more countries will ratify it because uh, the first meeting of states parties of the treaty is gonna be held in 21st uh, of June in Vienna uh, this year. And uh, I'm gonna now just briefly mention topics that have been sparked off or pertinent just in the last year uh, because of the uh, adoption and ratification of the treaty. Uh, first of all, it's important to realize that the non-proliferation treaty, which has been around for decades, never got anywhere. And its next big meeting follows later in the summer. And 
the impact of the nuclear ban treaty will be discussed for the first time there. Uh, it's also important to think about the meaning of what deterrence means that uh, some people are saying now that the war in U Ukraine has proven that deterrence works. Our, our position would be the opposite, that it's been evidence that deterrence is a, is a outdated, outmoded concept and very, very dangerous. And that the longer the war goes on, the, the higher the risk of escalation, the higher the risk of unintentional or accidental use of nuclear weapons. Uh, the, the amazing thing to me is that people have, again, social media it, 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 it is so telling that uh, on things like Twitter, you see people talking about that nuclear, uh, there are tactical nuclear weapons that would allow the war to be won, that a nuclear, in America, people are saying now that nuclear war is winnable these are totally wrong and not based on any sort of science. And now is the time that we need uh, to uh, counteract all that. And if anyone wants to find out more about these concepts, I think my three minutes are already over. Uh, I've, Hill, Hill is gonna put a list of uh, uh, links in the chat. And if anyone wants, to uh, get involved with our campaigning, just contact us through the MEDACT office and we can take that forward. Uh, we're at the highest risk since the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, for nuclear war. One optimistic thing is that the new Australian prime minister is an advocate for uh, uh, the treaty and we'll see if Australia will now uh, walk the talk as they say and that might be a very, very important international development. Thank you. Thank you all for sharing your important insights and introducing us to your work around peace and security. Um, and I think Hill has dropped the link to your work in the chat. Last, but by no means least, we would like to introduce Rhiannon Osborne, who's in the room with me. Um, Rhiannon is a medical student at the University of Cambridge and holds a BSc in neuroscience and the sociology of health. She is a researcher and activist in global health justice, working on extractive industries, access to medicines, philosophies of health and the climate crisis. She currently sits on the executive of the UK Health Alliance on Climate Change and organizes with People's Health Movement UK, Stop Cambo and Health for a Green New Deal. She advises her local government on climate and health policies, and it is great to have her with us today. Cool. Um, thank you so much, Rebecca, and thanks so much to all the previous speakers as well. Um, yeah, so I'm Rhiannon, and before I start my piece, I'd just like to share a little bit about how I came to this work, because I think it's important to highlight that Almost nothing I say here tonight is my ideas or opinions that I have created in, in a vacuum. Um, I am entirely the product of the people who I work with, people I learn from, and all of the people who came before us to build critical thought around health and environmental justice. And it is those deep relationships based on collective knowledge and learning through which we can truly expand our visions of health and healing because we are so much more imaginative and insightful um, together than we are 
alone and with that in mind for my contribution I'm actually going to read a joint uh, piece adapted from uh, a speech given by myself and Dr Abby Devanyagam, an organiser with Race and Health and Health for a Green New Deal. Um, I'm also part of the People's Health Movement Ecosystems and Health Circle um, who wrote the chapter on extractive industries for this book. Um, so I'll be talking a little bit about the perspectives of the circle as well. Um, and yeah, just to highlight that it's these relationships that have shaped this piece um, on yeah, climate change and health. So I think, so the WHO says that tackling climate change could be the greatest opportunity for global health this century. Um, but action on climate and health is often super incomplete. It lacks the lens of power structures, which have not only caused the climate crisis, but so much suffering in the world as well. And the white gaze produces this gigantic blind spot, which ignores power and structural injustices and continues to inflict trauma um, on the global majority. And Consumption continues to soar in the global north, but the often in climate and health spaces, the rhetoric is that we are running out of resources. And so countries with growing populations of people of color are told to produce and reproduce less, undermining their sexual and reproductive rights. And, you know, we're already seeing how in Pakistan, people were fasting during Ramadan in the middle of a heat wave. And during COP26, India and China were blamed for removing commitments to phase out coal power. Um, while the UK has over 40 new oil and gas fields in the pipeline during a fuel poverty crisis and refuses to acknowledge the need for let alone pay reparations. And I think it's so important that we start from the basis of we are not running out of resources, we are facing resource apartheid, where certain areas and so to certain wealth levels are hoarding resources whilst others struggle. And in mine and Abby's work, and in the work of Race and Health, PHM and MedAct, we um, posit the colonial capitalist aim of endless accumulation for the wealthy as the root cause of the climate crisis and the health consequences of the climate crisis are therefore not new injuries as they are often framed they are pouring salt onto existing wounds and i think it's really important to think about how we define health when we think about health and the climate crisis so the capitalist view of health is very disease focused and centers individual choices and behaviors as the main determinant of health this individualism is deliberately designed to keep us blind to how injustice shows up in our bodies. So environmental and ecosystem destruction in intersecting with racism, classism and patriarchy becomes embodied on a mass scale concentrated in those who are most exploited. We know that pollution, industrial agriculture, mining, the global arms trade and other ecologically destructive industries also destroy our health. But as we're told, as Rupa Maria says, to kind of juice and exercise our way out of oppression. And this narrowness as, of health as individual disease is also really important when it comes to health and climate change, because if health is a property which belongs only to an individual human and their organ functionings, we can be healthy in theory while ecosystems are collapsing. And this is, comes from narrow enlightenment rationalism, which thinks we can own, destroy, and sell the components of planetary life, including things like water and soil, and then buy back the components of our health from the market. And the PHM Ecosystems and Health Circle challenges this foundational idea that we can build healthy and flourishing societies through development 
based on exploitation of the people and its planet for capital accumulation and the idea that like building a system on those foundations will eventually bring us well-being um and this links into other aspects of colonial ideology which includes not only believing that humans are separate to ecosystems and nature and that our well-being is decoupled from that of the planet but the active practices of shutting down and hiding the knowledge of people who have lived in harmony with ecosystems and webs of life for thousands of years. And I think another aspect of this is expanding our view of health is key to tackling the climate crisis when it comes to combating the narrative that addressing the climate crisis is a sacrifice. And I think this is where the health and climate lens can be incredibly powerful because in reality, the industries and practices at the root of the climate crisis have undermined health for decades, even before they put out emissions. And so many people in the climate health space come to the space thinking everything is fine except the emissions rather than everything is not fine. And that's why we have the, all these emissions. So the fossil fuel industry harms health at every stage of the process. So if you take extraction in the Niger Delta to um, drilling for more oil and gas in the UK when our homes are freezing cold, this system isn't working anyway. And looking through this expansive vision of health and well-being can help illuminate how tackling these systems is not a sacrifice because they are undermining our health and well-being anyway that is what they are designed to do and another aspect of viewing health as this kind of collective expansive entity is we're going to need to do this to survive the coming decades are going to be incredibly challenging and will require a huge coming together through solidarity and connection if we are to protect our well-being. This individualistic, capitalistic notion of health that you can be healthy and just build higher walls when the people around you are suffering is not going to do it, right? So this expansive view on health can help us move towards a life-supporting paradigm and also think about how we support life in potentially um, ecological collapse. And what we really need to be thinking is how we abolish the conditions of sickness and build resilience collectively rather than treating disease when it arrives at the hospital. And specifically talking about emissions and the climate crisis, um, and I've kind of already touched on this again, but I think it's really important to repeat that within any system, emissions are the symptom of wider injustices that have been brewing for centuries. Once we realize that these injustices are the root cause of the climate crisis, so colonial capitalism and colonial capitalist plunder of um, both exploiting nature and exploiting labor as the root cause of the climate crisis, we can actually start organizing in real solidarity when we connect the struggles of a like woman without access to electricity in Sudan to a pensioner in the UK riding the bus all day long because she can't afford her heating bill. This is where we expand our possibilities for the intersections between climate and health justice. And the flip side of that is that if you don't dismantle the root causes of the climate crisis, you are only able to work within their limits and you end up with green capitalist racist solutions which replicate inequality because you can't divest from the climate crisis without divesting from white supremacy. And if, our, in, our, if in our sustainability work we're not doing migrant, racial, disability, gender, youth justice work, then we are not actually tackling the systems which have got us to the climate crisis. So there's a lot of talk about a net zero NHS, 
But a net zero NHS, which criminalizes patients and denies care to refugees is still violent. And what that shows is that we haven't managed to yet reclaim in the health space, we haven't reclaimed sustainability as social justice. Um, and this analysis is so key to the work of the PHM ecosystems and health circle, where we focus on the broader dynamics of environmental destruction, exploitation and resource capture, not just the emissions. Um, and the extractive industries chapter focuses on case studies from all over the world, um, and in particular, the communities at the front lines of these systems. And it highlights how tunnel vision for emissions, focusing only on carbon reduction without regard for the wider political and economic causes of emissions, is not enough to generate a livable present or, or a livable future for these, for these communities and for all of us. Um, so yeah, so I've said quite a lot, and this all sounds kind of quite challenging, I guess, and how do you know you're doing the right work in this space and if you're on the right path? Um, and I'm really inspired by the work of Aurora Levan Morales, who writes about using radical imagination as the stars you navigate by, while still having your feet firmly in the ground of today's reality. And as we do this work, in particular on the intersection of health and climate justice, our measures of success should be rooted not in emissions necessarily or numbers but in real people's lives as well and alongside others such as race and health med act and the phm ecosystems and health circle um abby and i are two of the co-founders of the people's health hearing which is a global forum for health um, and climate justice centered on testimony and on sharing the stories and perspectives of those at the front lines of extractive industries and the climate crisis. And it's this deep listening and deep accountability to each other, which can help illuminate our paths from healing the wounds of today and mapping our boldest imaginations. And this accountability is especially essential for those of us based in cities or countries which are responsible for the majority of global emissions and global ecological damage. And for example, in our chapter, the, ecos the Ecosystems and Health Circle, we highlight the work of PHM Canada, who, was, who acts in solidarity with anti-mining campaigns in Latin America, challenging the companies, many of whom are headquartered in Canada. Um, and for those many of us who are based in the UK, similar work is being done in the UK, for example, um, protest and occupation at the Africa Energy Summit, um, where many of the kind of neo-colonial corporate energy companies um, kind of have their conferences to divide up resource extraction in Africa. And especially thinking about the UK um, and um, our role here as we look forward and use radical imagination it's um, absolutely essential to recognize that accountability is part of the future not part of the past because it's incredibly hard to build a better world if you're too stubborn to acknowledge the wrongs of where we are today and so we have to factor reparations into this thinking not not just because they are just, but because think about all of the abundance and creativity and inspiring solutions to the climate crisis that could come out of taking stolen wealth away from corporations or Western governments and giving back those resources to people whose visions and solutions have often been hampered by exploitation. Um, and kind of to wrap up, I think I have like one more point, maybe. Two. Um, what we hope to do with this kind of more radical work in the climate and health space is to 
challenge a society not just where we have like a net zero nhs but where we have a society built around justice collective health and well-being where we have a society built around abundance of health and abundance of justice not abundance of growth or capital in particular the extractive industries chapter has a case study on sumat kause uh, which loosely translates to a beautiful life the um, indigenous philosophy of ecuador um, and is one of the many paradigms which challenges Western ideas of development and extractivism. And I think a key part of journeying towards these alternatives and exploring them is learning from other movements and building those connections and offering solidarity because a healthy world and a just world isn't one that kind of can be exclusive. Um, and there are more than enough resources for us to all live flourishing lives. And so we, as we develop campaigns and research, we have to engage with asking difficult questions of how we come together in a shared and expansive vision of collective well-being rather than competing interests. And something that we see a lot in the climate discourse is saying that other people's struggles are a distraction, saying, okay, we can put this struggle aside, we can put struggle aside for gender justice or racial justice because we don't have time because emissions are rising. And in that urgency, people are often tempted to say that we don't have time. To, to take into account all of our struggles. But understanding the root causes of the climate crisis enables us to see that actually there is no solution to the climate crisis without including everybody's struggles and without building those connections. So I guess kind of as my conclusion, I would challenge or invite anyone to expand their analysis of the links between climate change and health, to expand your visions of well-being beyond extractive industries and consumerism. And above all to act in solidarity and with humility, working with those who suffer at the hands of exploitive industries and governments across the world. The climate crisis is a crisis we will not be able to deal with without a deep, humble and emotional understanding of its root causes in colonialism, capitalism, patriot and white supremacy. Um, and yeah, I would encourage everyone to check out the work of Race and Health, of the PHM Ecosystems and Health Circle, Wretched of the Earth, so many other cool people who I don't have time to list, but um, I'll put some stuff in the chat. So yeah, thank you so much everyone. And thanks to all the other speakers, you're awesome. Thank you, Rhiannon, for your powerful words and uh, inspiring and challenging us to organise in real solidarity across struggles and movements. Thank you also so much for what all of the speakers have shared and brought to this space. There's so much to sit with and move from here with in our struggles for health justice. So thank you so much. We'll now be moving for the next 10 to 15 minutes on to Q&A. We've had some questions in the chat and to Hill, but we also invite you to use the hands up Zoom function if you have questions you'd like to ask. We may not have time for them all, but that's okay. These are ongoing discussions which we hope to continue having together. So one, the first question that I'm gonna um, offer to the panel is um, someone has asked, the so uh, is there anything we can salvage from the crisis of the COVID-19 pandemic to strengthen the health justice movement? So that's open to all, all our panelists and we'll put it in the chat as well. Um, yeah, I'll take it. I think 
Um, yeah, good question, a difficult question. I think something that was really clear to me is that suddenly overnight, um, lay people had a really, um, had a, an interest in health policy and they actually realized how health policy can be weaponized because suddenly they couldn't leave their houses and they couldn't do anything that they wanted to do um, because of health protection and they realized the importance of health surveillance. Um, and obviously what that led to in some respects was um, skepticism and anti-masking and anti-vaccine um, and things like that. But then on the plus side, we have this renewed interest in health, right? As, a, as not just in an individual way, but also realizing the collective importance of health and that we can't um, try to do a, although this government and people have tried to push this, but in terms of like, just protect our borders and we'll be fine. Like we saw quite obviously how that's, um, that will fail. Um, so I think that needs to be capitalized on. And I don't think it's probably been capitalized on enough in terms of how we galvanize more of the general public into organizations and health activist organizations. Um, when people are looking at how many people affected by long COVID, for example, and how people, lay people, got movements around that. So I think that's something that's really important to take away with from what's happened. And I think we need to continue to draw on that renewed interest. If anyone else from our panel would like to speak to that question, um, then please, please do. Well, if nobody goes. <laughs> oh, no, I, I was waiting for you to go. I think the, why don't you comment on the revival? I mean, access to medicines and... and... So I think, I mean, one thing I wanted to say was to echo, I think, something Rhiannon pointed out, which is that, um, so what is salvage? I don't know if we want to salvage anything from the COVID crisis itself. I, I think um, it's exposed things that we have known um, and it's just painted them more starkly. I think one of those things that it's exposed is the fact that we are living in a period where so many uh, crises are intersecting. Uh, and I think all of the speakers in different ways have illustrated this, that there are multiple crises. Um, and, and so I think, you know, um, ad addressing these issues on a case specific basis or in a vertical way, um, is counterproductive. I think one of the things maybe that we could or need to salvage is um, North-South solidarities. I think in some ways that's been reactivated um, by the struggle for the TRIPS waiver and the access um, to equitable COVID-19 uh, technologies movement. Um, and, and I think um, something maybe not to salvage, but to set aside so this is kind of my personal position. I can't say that I speak for 
the movement, but I think, you know, in 2001, the Doha Declaration was seen as really groundbreaking and as um, a legal mechanism guaranteeing that during public health emergencies, IP would be waived. Um, and I think the COVID pandemic has um, kind of given that the lie had shown that that isn't necessarily the case. And so maybe um, instead of salvaging that idea or revisiting it, it's, it's time to advocate for taking health out of the World Trade Organization um, and, and not commodifying and privatizing health interventions, health technologies. Um, and so that speaks to new inventions, but I think also um, COVID has exposed the, um, the loss of life and the difficulties that stem from uh, commodifying and commercializing healthcare, right? Where you um, you then cut the infrastructure that people need in order to access care during times of crisis, or they become so indebted um, that um, this has an enduring impact on their quality of life post crisis. Laura, did you want to say something before? No, no, because I knew Laura could say it better than me. <laughs> I was hoping for her to go. <laughs> Nothing to add. Yeah. Um, so one of the other questions that um, ha has been asked is, um, Kiara, you spoke of the importance of convergence, of coming together across movements. Um, and something I'd like to, like to put to our panel is how can we do that in practice moving forward? It's quite an expansive question, but um, we'd love to hear your reflections. Well, um, one thing I can say that we 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 tried to organize in the in you heard different people speaking about thematic circles in, in PHM. We tried to um, to build these circles that are group people from different countries and focus on issues. So we have gender justice and health. We have um, environmental um, environment and health um, ecosystem health actually called. Um, we have trade and health, um, war and conflict, and I think uh, this is a tool that we um, that we thought of in the movement, both to provide space and ground for international solidarity within the movement, but also to um, provide the space of convergence for convergence because people representing or um, you know working around these issues can find um, a space to discuss the intersections with health and the health movements in, in the thematic circles. And I think that um, Global Health Watch in, in the chapters that arise from this, there's three or four actually chapters that are linked to the work of thematic groups, um, that, that they are a product of, of such conversions. And then the thematic groups it themselves are in a way uh, um, a representation of convergence happening. Um, then I think it is um, it is also something that needs to be analyzed at two levels, so at um, national or local level and global level. Um, so there are, um, for example, COVID nineteen. Just to just to link the previous question to this one, uh, at least in Italy, um, is 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 a space for convergence because this renewed um, attention and sensitivity for health and health policy has um, 
arose, you know, we, we've been called as health activists from groups working on other issues who wanted to know more and, know and understand better what was playing out and what is playing out in health policy and health reform. So this has provided a, a, you know, a space for intersecting struggles and to engage more uh, groups and movements around, um, for instance, health policy. So I'm, I'm sure there are more concrete examples from different countries as well. Thank you very much. Um, and we have a question for Annabelle um, from the chat. So it was, how do you view developments in the USA regarding Roe versus Wade? And do we have to watch out here? Yeah, so really important issue. I'll post it in the chat. I wrote a quick overview for Gowan um, about, about it. Um, just uh, an article, not an academic analysis. Um, just thinking about reproductive justice and some of those issues. So first of all, I think we've got really, it's really important that because of American imperialism, potentially um, in policy, in healthcare, often we do kind of see what happens in the US and it does resonate obviously across, you know, because of these reasons. But they also have their specific context and their specific history and because of religious factors, the um, approach to abortion in the US is very different here. Obviously, in Northern Ireland, Ireland, we've had recent repeals of legislation um, and they have separate access issues to England. Um, however, we did have a, we do have a government that is hostile to abortion and we had a health secretary that until fairly recently wanted fairly little to do with that issue. So I think it is important to remember that we um, our rights in that area are not always um, a given. I think something that is more potentially um, threatening is obviously in the US for people that don't know there's policies um, like the global gag rule, which is implemented by Ronald Reagan, extended by Trump, which ties USAID funding to um, talking about abortion. So if any organization has an approach to public health where they discuss abortion rights or they talk about that they can't receive US funding and that leads to programs collapsing under um, Republican um, US lead leadership um, particularly across the global south so you have anti-retrovirals that can't be supplied cervical screening um, anything in SRH programs that are linked to that so I think that kind of style policy I worry we could actually end up implementing in terms of our foreign policy, where we have, um, you know, um, for we already seen how um, kind of DFID was collapsed and um, where we spend our, um, our funding overseas has been radically changed in the last 10 years. And I do think that kind of style policy where um, things that um, our, our government don't agree with politically, could then um, restrict um, how we fund um, organizations overseas. And I think that is a really, really real threat rather than actually changes to our legislation in access in this country. But I also don't think we should be complacent in that respect because we do have a government that is actually hostile um, to, to this issue. Thank you so much. Thank you all for your questions um, and some really important questions that have just come through the chat, which we are very sorry to not have time for tonight. Um, we'd like to thank all our panelists for sharing so much expertise, wisdom and heart. And it's been an absolute privilege to share this space with you all. 
I'll now just hand back over to Sarah to close the space and signpost you to a few other things. Thanks, Becca. Um, yeah, thank you to all the speakers for your insights and inspirations, some really, really good talks. Um, so just some final, uh, final things to say. Um, you can buy the book on the MEDAC website. You can buy a copy of Global Health Watch. Um, you can become a member of MEDACT um, for as little as one pound a month. That, all that information is also on the MEDACT website. Um, there are a few upcoming events um, that you can join, which I think, is there a slide with this information on it as well? Just so that it can come up concurrently while I'm talking. Um, Anyway, the, the slide might pop up, but if the, um, but I'll just um, tell you here. Um, so there's a fundraiser for Ukraine on the 8th of June, um, a cost of living rally on the 18th of June, and an author talk with Rizwan Savir on the 21st of June. Um, so these are all events coming up in the next month. Um, you can keep up, up to date with uh, the co-organizers, uh, I think there'll be some information posted in the chat about this as well on their social media channels um, on Facebook and Twitter um, and on their websites. Um, so I think these are, these are being posted in the chat um, as I speak. Um, and that concludes this evening's events. Thank you so much to everyone for coming. Um, we really enjoyed having you here and thank you to our speakers for all your contributions. Um, it's been a really great event. Thanks, everyone.